Thank you, thank you. Uh, just while you're... Oh, are we on? Yeah? Just while you're getting settled, why don't you turn to someone, say hi to them, greet them. There's, there's maybe some folk around you you don't know very well. Um, we'll be able to get into God's Word together. Okay. Are you ready to open God's Word? We're going to be... Um, Looking at the Bible story together, the biblical story together, I think our youngest children are going out as well at this point, so our crush group will be going to the back and our sparklers group over here um, as well. And I think, have we got youth going out as well, Dave? Yeah, we have. We've got youth going out, so there's a bit of movement for a moment as well. How many of you are looking forward to the new year? Anybody? Yeah? How's it going so far? Good. We've got a good over here. Can we do better than a good? An excellent. Oh, someone's having an excellent New Year already. Anybody else's average? No one wants to admit to an average New Year so far. Oh, an average New Year. Uh, and we won't go any lower. Well, no, you might not want to admit to anything else. Um, I just wanted to start this, uh, this message this morning by really just reflecting on the year that we've had. And with a group of people like this, we've seen God at work over this last year. God's been good to us. Over this last year, we've, within, this, uh, within the church, we've had people come to Christ this year. People get saved and make decisions, first-time decisions. That means they've crossed from death to life. They've been born again and are journeying with Jesus. That's exciting, isn't it? It is. Are you sure? Okay, I think that's really exciting. I mean, someone's eternal life has been changed and their destiny is secure. That's brilliant. We've had people get healed. We've, we've seen people uh, grow in faith. We've seen people trust God in all sorts of new areas. We've seen people take, uh, go on mission trips overseas. We've seen others do mission in the town. We've seen still other people uh, grow in faith to take Jesus into their workplace and to join in and to, uh, to, to take uh, the message of the gospel to those around them. We've seen still others finding new faith at home with those that they're ministering to there and serving God amongst uh, there as well. And uh, it's just exciting to see what God is is doing uh, amongst us uh, in this place, isn't it? Um, it's great as well to see what God has been doing um, at Southside too. I'm including the whole church in this and the same story there, people finding faith and uh, people being healed, people uh, taking steps of faith towards Jesus and all of this is just exciting. And then who would have predicted the events of 2019 nationally or politically or globally? Who would have thought that some of those things in the church would happen. We've seen some people come and some people go. But nationally, what, what about what's been happening there? Who would have predicted that our Prime Minister would resign and that we'd have Boris Johnson as our Prime Minister a few years ago? Would you have thought that would be the likely thing that would be happening right now? But it is what's happened. Who would have thought that uh, there would have been all this tussle and tangle around Brexit? And who would have thought that I events would have shaped in the way they had? That maybe if you, you've got your eye on global politics, there'd be the rise of uh, Hindu nationalism within India and all the kind of resultant persecution that's causing and fallout from that. Uh, just one nation there, one huge nation. Or, or, or perhaps some of the things that are happening in America and different nations around the world. Who would have thought that some of those things would have taken place? Marches involving, across the globe, millions of people. The situation in Hong Kong unfolding as it has done over this year. Who would have predicted that? Or maybe as we start 2020, I mean, wow, what a great year, isn't it? 2020, it sounds impressive, doesn't it? Just, you know, I know we only just write these things down and they're, 
they're, they're, they're markers of how time's passing, but doesn't that sound cool? It's what we've used for your eyesight for years, so there's going to be lots of stuff around about 2020 vision and how cool that's going to be and how exciting. And, and yet, who'd have predicted that at the start of this year that Australia would be battling forest fires in the way they are, or, or that a certain president would decide it was a good idea to blow up an Iranian general in another country? I mean, you just look at... I, I, I kind of, you come across the news and you go... I'm not sure that's the best plan, but what, I, I'm not a president, so I don't know. Um, but certainly in terms of promoting short-term peace, it doesn't seem to be a great plan. But maybe God's got a bigger plan in all of this, and I know he has, actually. And that's my point today, really, is that we're living in a world which, which is quite shaky. Because I told some of the good bits of what's happened in church life, but actually behind the scenes, there's been some stuff that's been tough in people's lives, too. And... and we're wondering sometimes, God, where are you in all this? Where are you in my own life? Where are you in my family's life? Where are you in this situation that I'm tracking through? Where can I see God at work? Where is he? And when we open the papers or you turn on the news or you open your app and you read about what's going on in the world, maybe, just maybe, there's, there are times when you go, yes, that's brilliant. That's just what I wanted to see. That's, that's just the news I was hoping for. But there might be other times when you look and you go, Why? Why is that happening? Why are we going through this? Why is this occurring now? I just don't get it. And I don't wanted to talk um, today, but we're starting this new series, Hallmarks. You can see it on the screen. And the idea being that when you're looking for the reliability of a, of a gold or silver or platinum item, you, you may look for the hallmark. You'll say, well, what's, what, what's true? What's reliable? What's, what can I trust? And... Um, the, the assay office marks, you know, oversees the marking of hallmarks on, on rings and jewellery and that sort of thing. Um, but we want to look for what's reliable and what's true and what's quality, but also what remains. I don't know if you've seen old rings. I, I know it's possible for hallmarks to be worn off, but it's very difficult to do. But quite a few old rings will have markings on, and they've got worn and scuffed over the years. But if you look on the inside, the hallmark's still there. And I want to talk about, some, we want to look over the coming weeks about things that remain. In this world that we've got, think where things are shaking around, what remains, what's sure, what's steadfast, what can we base our lives on? In 2020, when there's going to be some amazing highs, it's going to be a great year. And there will be some challenges along the way. What are we basing our lives on? What are we building our lives upon? What are we saying, this I know this is reliable. This is trustworthy. This is true. I'm going to go back to what was said at the beginning of 2020 when I'm six months in or seven months in or nine months in when this event's unfolded or that event's unfolded or I didn't think it was going to work like this. What am I coming back to that I'm saying, no, I know this is true. We want to look at some of those sort of things uh, over these coming weeks. There's a great verse um, and it's in Corinthians. And it's at the end, it's at the end of the chapter that is often used in weddings. It's all about love. Um, but that incredible chapter about love is actually in the setting of talking about spiritual gifts that are given to the church. And it's a great chapter for weddings. It's a great chapter for more than that too. Because Paul, in his writing this, is talking to a church which values God being at work right now. Their meetings, their gatherings together would have been something else would have been slightly chaotic. We've been very organized and very ordered today, don't you think? A little bit subdued. Maybe it's the start of the new year. I'm not sure. Maybe people are just waking up. Um, but the Corinthian church wouldn't have been quiet, I don't think, at all. It would have been that Bedlam is 
got so many negative connotations, and I think it might have been a bit bedlamish at times. Um, all sorts of stuff going on, people using their spiritual gifts and looking at how great they were. And um, Paul writes this chapter on love to say, hang on a minute. It's not just about using these spiritual gifts. So they're incredible and they've been given by God and they're a gift of God and they're to be used, but use them in love. And at the end of talking about the amazing spiritual gifts the Corinthians have given, which he's encouraging them to use, he says this, and now these things remain, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And he's just explained that the spiritual gifts that they value so highly, and you might, might go to a church with the very best worship team, or the very best style and design, or the very best preaching, or the very best, whatever it might be, programs, activities, prayer times, or whatever. And he's, it's as if he's saying to them, look, all of those things are going. Your worship's gone, your preaching's gone. Your every, this is what remains. Faith, hope, and love. There'll be a day when all those other things come to an end. They're important now in this life. But there will be a day when the spiritual gifts come to an end. There'll be a day when all the accoutrements, all the stuff that we have around us comes to an end, but these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And today I want to pick the first of those and talk about faith. And to, talk, to unpack what it is, this kind of faith that remains. And I think we use the word faith in three different ways. And I want to tackle and talk about each one of these three. I think we talk about faith for things, faith in things, and faith about things. And I, want to, I believe God's got a word for us that will encourage us and challenge us in each, each area of these so that we've got the kind of faith that remains and stands. First one, faith for. This is where we talk about being in faith for God to do something. Or we might say, I've got faith that God will do something. Um, when, we, when we encourage people to come forward for prayer, um, we're, we're often people come who are sick or they've got a particular situation. And if I'm praying, I will say, what would you like me to pray for for you? What are you trusting God for? Because I want to see what is it the person wants. I don't want to impose something unless I've heard from God in that moment. But Jesus, when a blind man came and the most obvious thing this man had was his blindness, he said, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, I want to be able to see. And so there's this little, little exchange where Jesus says, what do you want? And the man says, this is what I've got faith for. This is what I'm trusting for. So that's what I often do when I'm praying. So faith for stuff. This is the things that we're asking God to do. We have faith in. We've got faith in Jesus. We talk about placing our faith in Jesus. We were praying this morning for people to place their faith in Jesus, saving faith, rescuing faith, that faith that uh, changes. Luis was talking, Luis was talking earlier about that, that encapsulation of the gospel in that verse of the song where it's talking about um, us being saved by Jesus Christ. That's the kind of faith we're talking about there, putting our faith in Jesus. And then finally, our faith about and that might be the list of things that we believe are true and uh, where we have, this is our faith as a church or as individuals or as a, as a family or whatever it might be. This is the faith that we're perhaps contending for. And today I want to use a book that we don't use very often. Um, I don't know why. It's 1 John. It's a great book. Uh, towards the back of the New Testament. So if you've got a paper Bible in front of you, um, don't worry about John's Gospel. It's further back than that. 1 John, first letter to John. If you're using an app, then, then great. You'll be able to find it. All the words will be on the screen uh, in most cases. But I want to look at 1 John because this is one of the last books to be written in the New Testament. And the church that John's writing to has gone through some stuff. 
They really have. Uh, they've got two groups of people at least there. They've got the Jewish believers who were Jews and are now kind of following Jesus uh, and uh, with their Jewish roots, but now they've found that Jesus is the Messiah. And then they've got Gentiles who never were Jews, and they also know that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Savior, um, and they're following Jesus too. And these two groups have kind of merged a bit. And, and then in AD 70, there's a crisis in, in the whole of the Jewish community and Christian community because Rome, um, the Roman army sort of sacks Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. And that means that the worship for the Jewish people changes. It means that the Christians' relationships with the Jewish communities get fractured and broken. And it means that where kind of Christians have been able to exist as a subset of Judaism for a sort of while, now they can't. And this is where persecution begins to ramp up and begins to change. And so the kind of church groups are thrown together as Christians versus the rest. And you get all these different views thrown together. And the church is having to navigate what is the faith? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean when we're being persecuted and we're struggling? And and how do we cope? How do we hold on? And how do we advance to in the things of God? And John's written into, one John's written into that kind of context. And I think it's quite relevant for us to today. And so John starts, we're talking about faith, John starts with these words. And I wanted to just read these because I think they're so powerful. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That may not sound like a very inspiring start to a letter, but it is to me. Because what he's saying there, he's saying whatever you think about what we're going to tell you, we can verify that this is true, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy because we were there. We were there. This is eyewitness stuff. This is like looking at the hallmarks and going, okay, yeah, I'm going to trust that. This is, this is reliable. This is, so this is not just stuff that's being made up. This is not someone inventing a story. John is writing and saying, we were there. People might try and claim that Jesus is this or Jesus is that or the Christians believe this, but John's writing to say, no, no, we've touched this. It's real. We saw it. We were there when the miracles were happening. We were there when Jesus was preaching. We were there when he was crucified. We were there when he rose again. We were there. It's reliable. So, Faith and defining faith. Faith about, faith about, faith in, and faith for. This early community is facing challenges in all of those areas. And we're going to have a look at some of those things. So faith about. Faith about. This is the stuff that we believe about Jesus and about Christian faith. Um, I've said already one of the key features of 1 John is that the early church is under attack um, and, and it's under attack from all sorts of areas from outside the church from people coming in to preach and to speak false falsehoods it, it's under attack from outside from political forces from religious forces from all sorts of people coming to divide and of course spiritual forces that are unseen and, and in the middle of all this uh, this is the kind of stuff that they're having to deal with John writes these things dear children this is the last hour and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Who is the liar? It's, he, it's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father 
and the Son. And so what we've got in this situation is, obviously within the, in, within the community, people have been coming in and they've, they've left again, saying all sorts of things, and John's having to write and say what they're saying isn't true. And what they're saying and the fact that they've left demonstrates that their message wasn't true. They've left the one who is the true Christ. Uh, there's an interesting, if any of you study theology, and uh, there's an interesting discussion point around what comes first, heresy, false teaching, or orthodoxy, true teaching. What came first? It's kind of chicken and egg situation. What came first, chicken or egg? What came first, heresy or orthodoxy? And you go, well, obviously the truth came first and then the falsehood comes. And it kind of does, but actually what we're seeing here is, is the formation of Christian teaching. Because it, sometimes it's not until you hear something that's false that it makes you realize, it highlights what the truth is. Is that right? And kind of when you're handling, you kind of get so familiar with truth sometimes, you don't necessarily note down what it is. Cashiers in, in, in shops in the old days when we used money, do you remember that, using cash? God, those were the days, weren't they? Um, when you use cash uh, in, the, in the good old days, you used to get familiar with handling it, and there was a point at which if you ever handled a fake note, you could just go, hang on a minute, that's not right. And you knew because there was, you didn't, it wasn't because you'd necessarily learnt 20 factors of what a true note was versus a fake one. But you could then, having got the fake one, you could go, hang on a minute, no, that's different to that one. It felt different. There was something just not quite right. And now I'm going to note down what the differences are. Oh, yes, that's the fake one. That's the real one. Well, the same sort of thing's happening in the early church as they know what the truth is intuitively plus through what's been taught. And suddenly this stuff's coming in and they're going, hang on a minute, that's not right. And sometimes we have that kind of filter today, don't we, ourselves? When you're listening to new teaching, you're listening to something, you go, this, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something just not quite right about it. Well, that's what's going on here in this, in this passage. And some of these things are not minor issues. We're not talking about a group of people left because they didn't like the songs that were being sung or weren't being sung. A group of people left because they didn't like the biscuits that were served with the coffee after the, after the service. They're, they're leaving because they're saying, actually, Jesus is not the Christ. That's pretty serious, pretty fundamental stuff. This is not side issues. These are not style issues. These are not detail issues. They're saying something quite dramatic, and, and John's coming in to tackle this. What's actually going on is that on the one side, the Jewish Believers, their tendency is to view Jesus as an anointed man. He's a man anointed by God, specially anointed, empowered, blessed. He's our example. But that just means if that's what you emphasize only, you just stop short of Jesus being God. On the other side, you've got the Gentile believers who with their philosophies and all sorts of other thinking, and they're coming in and saying, Jesus is God, he's God, he's, he's different to us, and, and, and actually we're spirits, we're not body, and, and the danger is you get there is that you end up into some kind of esoteric philosophy which doesn't have its roots in practical truth, and, and you lose the reality that Jesus was also man. If he wasn't man and if he wasn't God, he needs to be both to be able to die for us on a cross and pay for our sin and deal with the problem of stain and sin and shame. If, if he's not really man, fully in a body that's, that's tactile, that eats, that drinks, that is tempted yet does not sin, and if he's not fully God, he's not sent from God to make the difference for us, fully God, fully man, he cannot pay our price. And we, we are still dead. We are still lost. We have no hope. 
because it didn't work. He is our example. But he has to be God and man together. It's a wonderful mystery. And this is the challenge that, uh, that John's writing about. And the stakes are high. Uh, and he writes these words. He says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. If you want to know the Spirit of God's at work, this is it. One of the ways. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Simple. Jesus is a real man, not a pretend man. Jesus is also God. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. He's also God. He's man and he's God. And finally, this kind of combining of the two, he's God and man in Christ. Uh, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. That's his kind of encapsulation. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Wow. Now, you might think, Stuart, why are you saying this? We, we, it's not a problem today. Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, it's not an issue mostly for us in the church because we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We don't kind of grasp all the intricacies of that, but we understand that as a core aspect of our faith. You can't shake that. No one's going to challenge that. No one's going to be audacious enough to say Jesus wasn't fully God, Jesus wasn't fully man. That would be, that'd be daft in our kind of setting or in, in the churches in Tunbridge Wells. No one would say that. There are groups that do. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons, do challenge that and have to write their own Bibles and own books to back that up because the Bible doesn't teach that. But generally for us, it's not an issue. I think the issue for us isn't believing it with our heads. It's, it's living as if Jesus is Lord and living as if he's really man and really God combined. It's not dismissal of Jesus. That happens in the world, doesn't it? The world outside would love us to believe that Jesus was a lovely man and lived a long time ago and said some very nice things. That's what generally the world would love us to believe. But we dare to believe that he's the Son of God, the Christ, the one who took our place, which means that we elevate his teaching from being the nice words of a nice man to being the authoritative words of God. And we listen. And I don't, we don't listen enough. Because we're so distracted. Uh, Some of you will have gadgets with you that will have alerted you to various things while you've been in the meeting today. And you'll have swiped or or clicked or done something. You'll have engaged with a form of distraction while you've been here. When you get home, there'll be loads of distractions. And we live in a hyper-distracted world where Jesus is not uppermost in our thoughts. And my desire is that he would be uppermost in mine. And too often he isn't. Too often, as I look back over this last year, I've been worried about small things when actually God's call is to be concerned about him. The big thing, if you like. And and I I suppose my my secondary challenge is John's writing about some big stuff and sometimes we fall out over trivia as churches. You know, there's some great churches in the town. If you're visiting with us um, and you have a conversation with me, I will say it's lovely to see you. Great to have you here. We, we love having you here. There, just to let you know, in case you didn't know, there are also some other great churches in the town, and you might like to go there, and if, if you particularly want this, then that's a great church to go to. If you particularly want that, that's a great one, because there's different flavors and different types. Uh, sadly, th- we can fall out with other Christians, can't we, about different beliefs that are quite fringe, really, because John is contending for, is Jesus God and man? And I don't remember a church split, a church division that came around that issue. 
I could point to plenty around the style of music that was played or the type of songs or, you know, moving the pews or the piano. You know, can you imagine if we, if we didn't... I won't go there. Cool. You know, there might be a lightning bolt. But we fall out over such trivia. John's contending and the biblical authors are contending for real stuff. Who is Jesus? And my challenge as I, as I think about who is Jesus is, am I living as if Jesus is the Christ every day? Am I really or am I getting distracted? Uh, secondly, looking at faith. See, there you go. I've got an app, my app's telling me that it's someone's birthday today. Isn't that exciting? Callum, happy birthday. None of you know him. Uh, it's not the Callum that you do know. Um, faith in this is a simple one, isn't it? Faith in Jesus. We know that we're saved. We know we're rescued. We've got faith in Jesus. And John writes this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's really simple. If you've got the Son, you've got life. If you haven't got the Son, you haven't got life. I write these things to you uh, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. What a promise! You've got eternal life if you've believed in Jesus as the Son of God and you've said, I want to follow him. I want him to take away my sin. You've got life. If you haven't done that yet, please do. Don't leave this building without saying yes to Jesus. Please don't leave without saying, Jesus, I recognize that you are the Son of God. I need you and I want the eternal life that's being spoken of. Life now and life forever. Albert, would you just come here and, and just stand here? I want people to see you. Trust me, it's okay. Albert was praying this morning with a real conviction that people would come to faith this year. People would come to know Jesus this year. So if, as I was speaking and as you've seen that, if you don't yet know that you have eternal life and you'd love to know Jesus more, I know that Albert would, would love to pray with you at the end of the service. So see this man because I'm shooting off to preach at the other side, but come and see Albert. He'd love to pray with you. Is that all right? Yeah. yeah Thank cool. you. I'm sure there'll be others too, but Albert just had a real conviction this morning that that's what he, he wanted to pray for and often does because uh, God's placed that on his heart. I'm showing you this scripture because sometimes you can wonder if it's worth it following Jesus. And I want to take you back to the New Testament where John is writing this. And we're probably late 80s, 90s AD that sort of era. So he's lived 60 years after Jesus' death. The church community has lived through the death of Paul, the death of Peter, the death of all the early disciples, the death of many other famous Christians, missionaries, all sorts of people. They're all dead. The first generation pretty much is all gone. That gets kind of lonely, doesn't it? If you've watched your friends go, and, and you've been, John is perhaps one of the last ones around, which is, I think is why he's saying, we've touched, we've tasted, we've seen. There's a few of us left who've actually were there at the day. Trust us, we, we saw it. But just imagine, what's that like in the church where you've believed that Jesus is coming back and you've lived with that hope and, oh, he hasn't come yet. Is it worth it? As persecution ramps up 
as the people who were my neighbors and were my friends and now are now turning their back on me and saying all sorts of things against me and as people are being put in prison and tortured and killed, is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus when, when I'm, I can't participate in the Roman acts that go on? Uh, so as you're, as you're trading, you're often part of trade guilds uh, and often part of trade guilds, you have to then engage in acts of, of Roman sacrifice and, and worship to the pagan gods, and you can't do that as a Christian. So there's all sorts of challenges for these early Christians. Is it worth it? Really? And maybe you've asked the same question at points. Am I just following an idea? And John's writing, after all these years of trusting Jesus, the one he walked with, the one he loved, the one who loved him, And he's saying these words. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. I write these things so that you who believe in the name of the son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. And I see him writing this or dictating it almost with tears in his eyes as he's reflecting on the wonder of following Jesus despite the cost. And I want to say today that whatever comes this next year, whatever comes, it's worth following Jesus and trusting in him, placing your faith in him, not in people, though we do trust people. We don't want to become critical and and, and withdraw our trust of people, but ultimately we're trusting in him, whatever comes. How do you know, this is a bit of a challenge in this passage as well, how do you know if a person has faith in Jesus? How do you know if someone's a Christian? Now, I think many of us, when we were little, would have said, well, they go to church and they, they do this and they do that and they, they, maybe they pray. Well, 1 John has an interesting answer to this question. How do you know if someone's a Christian if they've put their faith in Jesus? It says this. This is love for God to keep his commands. Number one. So if you're a Christian, if you're loving Jesus, if you're believing on him, the number one sign should be that you're keeping God's commands. Anybody else taking a slight breath in and going, ouch, at this point? Now, there's grace, isn't there? Aren't you glad for grace? Aren't you glad for God's continued pursuing love of you? But that doesn't stop the call to become more like Christ and to to say, Jesus, I can't do it by myself. All I'm going to end up doing is trying hard and wearing myself out, but I need you. I need you to come and make me more like Jesus. Show me areas in my life, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and reveal to me areas that you just want to work in. Lord, I submit myself to you, and and that will result in us keeping God's commands more and more. Number two, a great outcome of those who have faith in Jesus is that they're overcoming the world. That's exciting, isn't it? Who wants to be overcoming the world? Come on. A bit more excited about that than the first one. Number three, We know that anyone who's born of God does not continue to sin. Now, this does cause people to panic sometimes because they're going, hang on a minute, I was really cross when I parked my car that someone else had parked really badly and I said a word I probably wouldn't say in church and and I got really het up and what does that mean? I've sinned, therefore does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, it's a good question to ask, but I think what's talked about here is this kind of continual striving after sin and pattern of sin that's, that's hardwired. Now, we all have that to a certain extent, 
But Jesus has come to give us life, to break the curse of sin and to stop us being enslaved to it. And so this is the persistent avoiding of God and saying, God's up, you, up yours, stuff you, I'm off to go and do my own thing. Sadly, many of us do that day after day in different ways. That's the truth. We don't say those words, but in, we just hope that God's not looking while we get on with what we were hoping he wouldn't see us doing. I don't think this passage is ref- that verse is referring to that kind of thing, though it is desperately sad that we continue to, and it's time to stop. It's time to say, Jesus, I want to follow you wholeheartedly. Pack the sinning in and walk after you. If you find you, you don't want to do that and your heart doesn't grieve when you sin and you want to continue with the sin, then I think it's a great, great to put this verse on a little fridge magnet and stick it on your fridge and say, what's really going on in my life? What's happening? Because actually, I think all of us who love Jesus, who know that Jesus rescued us, uh, there's a desire to be more like him. We know we fall. We know we fail. We know it's only by grace that he picks us up again and says, I love you. Come on. Let's go through another day. Um, But still. I think some of the application for this bit is is I think that we should probably um, do what Jesus says a bit more. I think Jesus' words are the most challenging in the Bible and I think I want to encourage us by by our faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus. If you haven't already, then believe in him. But if you have already believed in him, my simple encouragement and challenge is this. Pick something Jesus said to do and do it. Pick a new thing that Jesus says to do and do it. If you notice something Jesus is saying to stop doing and you find it challenging, then stop doing it. Does that make sense? So pick a positive command of Jesus and put it into practice. And if there's a negative one, then, then stop doing the thing he's saying, stop doing it, or just do less of it. And that would be a great way of putting this into practice, to say, I'm going to put my faith actively into practice. I've just realized, skipping through my notes, that I've missed off the application of the first point, but we'll come to that, and I'll wrap it up in a moment or two. Faith four. This is the kind of faith where we're praying for stuff, and we're coming to God for healing, or we're coming to God for provision, or we're coming to God with something else, and it's the Gospels are full of this. People coming to Jesus again and again. I was reading a story just this morning of, of people who, where the whole village was healed. People came and every single person got healed. doesn't list just the minor conditions, but everybody was healed. That's awesome. So exciting. And we see what God can do as he breaks in. Many come saying, I want you to do this, Lord, in my life. Would you? And this verse is helpful for us. John's writing at the end of his letter. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. But if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have whatever we asked of him. That's a great verse. What an incredible promise. Whatever we ask, we'll have. Now you're waiting for what comes next, aren't you? Because I know when we read this, in the back of our mind are the times either we or others have asked stuff of God and we haven't got it yet. Or we know that others have lodged a complaint and said, but what about this thing? Because I, I think I asked and sounds like it's in God's will. Or I didn't really ask that, but I wanted it. And I didn't get it. Now, there's a couple of things with that. One is that we sometimes don't ask if it's in God's will. We don't kind of assess, is this the will of God or not? And secondly, we, we sometimes want things a bit quicker than God seems to. And sometimes there's a bit of a delay in asking God for stuff. 
And um, I'm not quite sure why that is. But it would be helpful perhaps to say, I haven't got it yet. I'm praying about this and I haven't got it yet. But what do we do about those times when we're, we're seeking God for stuff and we haven't yet had it? There are biblical examples. Paul is a famous one where he's, he, he describes having an issue with, with, we're not sure what it is, but he talks about a thorn in the flesh. And he says, God, would you take, Father, would you take this away from me? And God's response is, no, I'm not going to take it away because my grace is sufficient for you. And the mighty apostle Paul, who raises people from the dead and heals the sick and does all sorts of incredible things, asks three times and three times God says, no, my grace is sufficient. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, looking forward to the cross, says, take this cup, what shall I pray? Take this cup from me. He says, no, but your will, not mine, be done. And there's a little insight into this wrestling that happens bef- with God's will, where we go, Lord, I'd love not to do this, but actually your will be done. I'd love for there to be a different outcome, but your will be done. And we see Jesus going through that. But I think we've already got into territory that's quite dangerous because this passage isn't giving us a list of reasons why God doesn't answer our prayer. This passage is giving courage that he does. And it's giving confidence that he does answer our prayer. And it's saying, come on, we've got confidence in God that if we ask according to his will, he hears us. And we know that when he hears us, whatever we ask, he'll grant it. That's an incredible promise. Isn't that amazing? And the battleground here is disappointment for us today. The battleground is, can I get over my disappointment? Can I get over my query, my doubt, my, my fear? Can I get over my, all of that and come, and come before God and say, God, I'm approaching you boldly. I'm approaching you fearlessly to ask. If you're not sure that God has your best interests at heart, my solution quickly is that you get to know Jesus more. My solution to a couple of these practical points is that we read the Gospels more and we get to know Jesus more. Jesus told the disciples to pray with faith and if you're struggling, then like that man who who at one point says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Then let's pray that God would help us in our unbelief. Some of you follow the events that happen in other churches around the world, one of which is Bethel. And some of you will have followed this story over Christmas. Uh, the story of a little girl called Olive who died. And a little two-year-old girl, daughter of one of the worship leaders at a church called Bethel. If you've never heard of this church, don't worry about it. Um, I just want to use this story because this is a church where they do um, often encourage people to believe for healing and encourage people to to move in supernatural gifts. And um, the worship leader, I don't know what her husband does. I only know of the woman. And uh, who's the, the worship leader, one of the worship leaders there. Her daughter died suddenly at night. Um, terrible tragedy for any parent to endure. Um, and she had, the mum had real faith that she was to call people to pray and ask that, uh, and declare that her daughter would be raised from the dead. And so on Instagram, there were posts going out each day, wake up Olive, today's a great day for resurrection. And people were chiming in all sorts of things. Some positive, some negative. Whenever you put anything out in public, there's opinions galore, more than anybody ever asked for or needs. Um, And days went by and concerts were held. Uh, People wrote in prophecies and prayers and 
thousands of people, probably uh, many thousands of people were praying or declaring or saying or doing all sorts of things. And days went by and an olive didn't rise from the dead. And the parents uh, went through a, continued to go through their grieving process and, and buried their precious daughter. And the pastor of the church issued a statement um, just explaining, and uh, they, it must have been an awful time for everybody, just horrible. I think the church hired a PR consultant to help them just with all the media publicity that was going on. You probably, many of you will have missed this story. It ended up even in our national media um, on the fringes of some of their web pages because of the, the high profile that this church has around the world. Why am I saying that story? Because I'm concerned for us that we don't let disappointment rob us of our confidence in God. I'm concerned that we don't start saying things uh, that mean that we've lost hope. And because, let's be honest, if you, if you have heard of Bethel and you know this stuff, we can't compete. So if you go through a problem, it's unlikely you'll have as many thousand people praying for you as praying for that little girl. It's unlikely you'll have as many concerts held, as many prophetic dances videoed and recorded and posted, as many proclamations and claims and things said to raise a little girl from the dead. It's unlikely we'll be in that boat. What do you do? We trust still in Jesus who does raise the dead, who does heal the sick, who is the answer. And if my concern is this, three types of faith I've been talking about today and I need to wrap up. Faith about Jesus, faith in Jesus and faith for stuff that we want God to do. If we only have faith for stuff, our disappointment that comes will kill our faith because it's not broad-reaching enough, and it's not faith in Jesus. It's faith for stuff for us. In the midst of that sadness of that pain of that story, I clicked on a few days ago and was delighted to see that that same mum who's grieving the loss of her daughter, who called for people to pray with great faith, is still exercising great faith and is pointing to her saviour saying, we've got a great hope in Jesus. We've got a great hope in the one and we've got a great hope that we will see our little girl one day. Still pointing people to the king, still pointing people to Jesus. It would have been so easy for her to say, look, I'd had all this teaching, all this training and it didn't work. Where's God? Actually, the truth is, if our faith is only in what he'll do for us, we're going to struggle. Let me wrap up. This year, 2020, I'd love us to be bold. I'd love us to be fearless. I'd love us to be people of faith. I want that for me, if I'm honest. I want to stop being such a melt. <laughs> I want to stop coming up against difficult situations and going, oh, I'm not sure if God's really with me. I want to stop sinning with some of the stuff I've got caught up in that we do. You know, I get a bit grumpy and I you know, you do all sorts of things. You notice to pick one that's fairly socially acceptable there. <laughs> But there's stuff that goes on in our lives, and I just want to stop it. I want to follow Jesus more. I want to be more bold and more courageous. I want to have faith that contends. In Jude, we read this, that we should contend for the faith. And I'm concerned that we don't and that we should. So faith about Jesus, let's read the Gospels. If you want an antidote to your lack of faith in Jesus, read the Gospels. 
Commit to reading about Jesus. Meditate on them. Spend time with him. Faith in Jesus. Let's take time this year to simply read what Jesus said and do it. And thirdly, faith for stuff. I wonder if we can dare to be bolder than we ever have and to come with more confidence that he hears, that he's ready to answer and that he's still faithful. Should we pray? Can we stand together? Lord, I thank you for the faith that we follow, that is that Jesus died and rose again, that we have life in our Savior who rescued us and redeemed us and restores us. Lord, I thank you for the fact that our faith is in you and we can trust you and live for you. Lord, I thank you that we can have faith uh, to follow after you. Lord, I thank you that we can have faith for certain things, that you give us good gifts, that you answer our prayer, that you hear our cry, that you do respond. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us new boldness this year to pray boldly and to press in and to say, Lord, we long for you to move. Lord, would you help us to be strong in our faith about you, that we would know and understand who you are and that when attacks come, we would stand and say, no, this is what we've seen. This is what we've tasted. This is what we've touched. This is what we know to be true. The hallmarks of faith are stamped on our lives and will not be shaken. Lord, give us strong, courageous faith this year. In Jesus' name, amen.